supplemental curriculum, teacherpreneurs, and a different COVID surge that you probably didn't hear about. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a literacy coordinator for a local school district, an adjunct instructor at Utah State University, and a PhD graduate of that institution. This podcast is all about bridging literacy research into practice, and I want to welcome you to this episode. I hope that things are going well for you in your neck of the woods with whatever stewardship of literacy instruction you have. Before we get to today's episode, I am saying a big thanks to those that have left a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast at. That just helps other folks get in contact with the show. And I especially want to thank those that have shared an episode that you have found beneficial with a colleague. To me, that's more important. That's more beneficial than a, a starred rating on a podcast platform, because what matters to me is teachers being able to have access to the type of thinking that they need to be able to support their students. So. Thanks to those that are helping make that happen. Just a reminder, if you are interested in donating to the podcast, you can do that from the homepage at teachingliteracypodcast.com. If you click on About Your Host, you can donate securely via PayPal. And then also, if you go to Venmo, you can donate from the business side. The, the handle there is at teachlitpod. With those donations, I have some technology upgrades that I want to work on. I also have a new podcasting editing platform that is just fantastic, that is really made my workflow more manageable, but it's also made my workflow more expensive. So I, I appreciate those that are able and willing to help out a little bit with the show. Let's get to today's episode. Today's guest is someone that I had never heard of before, but when I saw his publication in the Review of Educational Research, I knew I wanted to get him on the show. His name is Daniel Silver, and he is a fourth year PhD student at the University of Southern California. And the article he wrote that caught my eye is entitled, A Theoretical Framework for Studying Teachers' Curriculum Supplementation. So maybe you have bought something from Teachers Pay Teachers and downloaded it and have used it in your classroom before. Or maybe you have borrowed curriculum from another teacher that, uh, that you were used to supplement your instruction in the classroom. This is an area of research that really hasn't been covered much before, but Daniel Silver is starting to shine a spotlight in that area and start to be thinking about what do we know about supplemental curriculum, how do teachers use it, and how can we use it effectively in the classroom. Very interesting episode I've got for you today. So stick around, enjoy the episode, and after the show, make sure you listen to my two cents on the topic. Daniel Silver, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. Great to be here. I'm excited to have you on the show. We're talking about curricular supplementation today. And before we get to that, I want to know a short history of your background and what initially got you interested in researching uh, supplemental curriculum. Absolutely. So I think um, there's sort of one strand of interest that starts as a teacher and then another strand that starts when I start my, my grad program. Um, so when I was teaching, I sort of noticed that, uh, a lot of what I was being given to teach had maybe minor errors or just little bits that, uh, weren't as clear as they could be, or 
pieces that just, uh, you know, given my students' background, probably wouldn't, you know, re required background knowledge that they didn't have yet. And so I needed to do a lot of doctoring, editing, uh, changing of, of the given curriculum, just like I imagine any teacher does. Um, and I guess I kind of developed a reputation uh, at the school I uh, at which I was teaching um, for doctoring things uh, well, or at least, you know, being annoying in my insistence to doctor them. And uh, by the end of my years teaching, I had uh, done at either writing or heavy editing of all of the uh, materials for third grade, which is uh, you know, the grade I taught. And then also over the summers did some for second and some for fifth and just kind of uh, helped out where possible. So that was, I think, a really uh, cool experience for, for me to have uh, even, you know, before entering the research world. Um, when I entered the research world, my uh, advisor, he uh, historically, a lot of his work had been around um, textbook efficacy. It's uh, he's Morgan Polikoff, wonderful researcher, wonderful advisor. Um, and I was sort of shocked when I was reading that work, uh, that they basically treated the textbook as the thing that gets taught in the classroom, even though they would acknowledge, yeah, you know, it maybe not always implemented with fidelity, but they would kind of sweep that under the rug. And, uh, little did I know when I showed up, he was already kind of on the next step that I was, uh, hoping to move to, whereas, it, you know, he was already thinking that. Hey, this supplemental curriculum, the ways the teacher supplement actually might be the thing, uh, either alongside or perhaps even more than textbooks, uh, in terms of, you know, understanding what goes on in classrooms, understanding, uh, what the important levers on children's learning are, uh, et cetera. And so that, you know, kind of step in his interest combined with my interest, you know, dating back to my time teaching just made, uh, curricular supplements, a, a really interesting, logical, and, and pretty easy step for me uh, when I started the program. What really drew me to this uh, review that we're going to talk about today is uh, curriculum supplementation. It's, it's a big thing. There's, there are websites out there, and it's really easy to go and find materials that are being promoted by someone on Instagram or, or that show up in other social media or just searching for it online. And I never thought about that as an area of of research. But when I saw your review, I thought, wow, that that's a huge area that I, I think is very under-researched and, and, and deserves attention, um, especially given some of the, the, the shifts in that area that we're going to talk about here pretty soon. So let's, let's start just getting to the nuts and bolts. Uh, Daniel, how would you define supplemental curriculum? What is supplemental curriculum? Yeah. So in the paper, I have uh, sort of a an official kind of stuffy sounding definition as uh, any premeditated additive change that a teacher makes to their official materials. Um, the reason that I defined it that way is basically to kind of give it uh, a bit of separation from a few other kind of distinct constructs. But the real core of that definition, it, in my mind at least, the key is uh, when I talk about supplementation, what I what I mean is that something that the teacher really meant to do. So not just like and oops in the moment, like I've got to triage this one thing, not a, uh, you know, oh, this is running too long. I'm going to cut out three problems. Um, although those are important acts in themselves, that's not exactly what I was focusing on uh, with this project. It's uh, the keys are, you know, you kind of think about it ahead of time. Maybe you create or find uh, 
uh, material beyond what you already have um, when there isn't really an expectation from, say, your school, your supervisor, whomever, uh, to go beyond the material you have. So this is a teacher premeditated finding something else other than what the, the district or the school or the powers that be have, have given them to teach in order to supplement instruction within their, within their classroom. So we're not talking instructional adaptations in the moment, but an actual material brought in by the teacher. Is that a, a decent that's, summary of that? Yeah, that's how, that's how I'm seeing it, at least for this project. It, it's a new enough field uh, and a new enough area for me, as you've said, that I, I'm, you know, not gonna uh, be married to, you know, any particular specific definition. I, I hope that it evolves, but that's mine for now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, so going back, supplemental curriculum has quite a long history, you know, catalogs in the 90s Absolutely. and the 80s that you can go through and buy stuff. But definitely, in your paper, you focus specifically on how it's shifted in the last 10 years. And I kept reading that. And when I and when I read that, I thought, yes, that is that reflects my experience of what I've seen. Can you explain the last 10 years? What's happened with uh, what, what? Give us a timeline over the last 10 years of supplemental curriculum and how things like the Common Core state standards influence that uh, process. Definitely. Uh, fun anecdote first, actually, when, when you mentioned that long history. Uh, my, my grandparents actually owned a supplemental curriculum company in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it's uh, called American Teaching Aid, so I, it doesn't exist anymore. But um, I checked in, you know, kind of uh, prepping for this uh, podcast. I, I just went on Amazon. You can still find some of their old books, and that's... Uh, my, my grandma drew the covers. My grandpa did a lot of the, the marketing such. So, um, yeah, that's a funny. So you come by it right. Well. It's just the family I, apparently, business. Apparently. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, within the education world uh, and therefore a few years behind in the research world, um, curriculum supplementation has really exploded. And um, there are, I think, two uh, main reasons for that. One is, you know, maybe in the last 10 plus, maybe 10 to 15 years, uh, just has to do with technology that it's, it's much easier, uh, to have a high speed internet connection in your home, in your school, everywhere. Uh, and that'll allow you to just jump on, say, uh, teachers pay teachers, uh, and Instagram, whatever, and, and follow links and download, uh, whatever is, is being advertised, whatever looks good. Um, the other sort of key contribution, maybe even more of a key contribution, um, involves, uh, the adoption of common core, which, you know, happens at the school level more like seven to 10 years ago, um, at least, uh, you know, in terms of school level implementation. Um, and the reason common core is so important is because first of all, um, it's a, a new set of standards around the time I was actually teaching around the time that, uh, it, you know, uh, became the law of the land. And the uh, sentiment was very much, this is something new. This is something that uh, is different from what we have been doing for years. Uh, and at the time, official textbook publishers weren't really moving quickly enough, nimbly enough to uh, get schools, the textbooks they needed on time. And so teachers naturally, you know, wanting to do the best by their students, they possibly can. Uh, a lot of us either turned to online or uh, just did our best to, you know, read the standards and create materials that aligned. And the other piece of that is 
not only was there this new need for uh, materials that were different, but everyone, more or less everyone, over 40 states had the same need. So rather than teachers in Texas uh, looking to uh, teach to one you know, set of goals in third grade and then teachers in Tennessee looking to teach to another set of goals in third grade, I guess Texas wasn't a great example because they didn't opt, but you know, oh well, uh, you know, you basically, you have 42 states that at the time all have the same goal. And therefore, as a creator of supplemental materials, you get to say, this is aligned to third grade common core, whether or not it actually is, who knows. Uh, but because you get to say that now, suddenly you're attracting eyeballs from uh, a much, much larger market than you were before. And so I think those things um, contribute to the initial boom. So although a site like Teachers Pay Teachers starts considerably before that, like 2006, uh, this, these types of materials really explode in you know, 2013, 14, 15 and onward. That's something I hadn't considered was having a large majority of the states or the schools of, of the United States teaching similar or identical set of standards that just from a sheer marketing standpoint, that materials can now be used much more widely uh, than they would have been able to otherwise pre-Common Core. So um, that, that kind of the rise of internet there and the, the, the rise of sharing and social media and then the rise of Common Core is an interesting way that that threads together. And then like all things education, COVID comes and rattles, rattles the cage. So uh, do you have any idea of how COVID-19 has influenced the supplemental curriculum world? I mean, in a strange way, if you, if you think about, you know, Common Core, suddenly everyone is in this situation that uh, they, you know, is unfamiliar to them. They have maybe a new context in which they need to teach. And that's, you know, a whole lot like what moving to remote is. Now, obviously, COVID is, uh, you know, has much more dire consequences. So it, it's not a great comparison, but uh, I would imagine if anything, and all the evidence that I've seen points to this, that, that COVID basically exerts pretty similar pressures on the supplemental curriculum sort of universe uh, that Common Core did initially, which is to say uh, teachers suddenly need materials that are new, that are different, and the official providers of these materials are not able to move nimbly enough to provide them, which in this case uh, makes sense since the division, the, the decision to go remote was made, you know, in a matter of weeks as opposed to Common Core where it was over years. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, I, I haven't read anything sort of nationally representative uh, about the effects of COVID on um, supplemental curriculum use, but there's uh, a recent article recent-ish, a couple of years ago, um, from the beginning of the pandemic, saying that, for example, Teachers Pay Teachers reports uh, a 20% increase in average weekly spending that coincides with the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so those sorts of data points make me think that, uh, if anything, it's it's just exploded even more. I would concur with that. Uh, I I mentioned social media a minute ago, but I want to I want to pick your brain specifically on that. How does social media fit into this curriculum supplementation world? So there are actually some some uh, really great researchers whose work is focused around um, kind of that intersection of of social media and curriculum supplementation. So. Um, a lot of work uh, coming from Michigan State by uh, Caitlin now Kaneki or Kaneki, I'm not sure how to pronounce, but a, a lot of her work is published under uh, her name Torfi, um, deals with uh, teachers' behavior on Pinterest, 
Um, there's another researcher, uh, Jeffrey Carpenter, who uh, does a lot of uh, work around teachers' behavior on Twitter. Um, and a lot of the findings, uh, unsurprising probably to uh, any of uh, our teacher listeners here, are that these platforms are used, you know, in in large part to uh, share products and by the people who are creating these products to market them. So very, very common to have, say, a storefront on Teachers Pay Teachers, but to get most of your traffic to that storefront via a link on your Instagram or via a link, uh, you know, from Pinterest, something like that. And so it's just completely hand in hand. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's let's get to the actual research you conduct you conducted. So you sort of wanted to investigate the state of supplemental curriculum. Can you just give us an overview of what you wanted to investigate, and then what were your methods for investigating those questions? Yeah. So when I um, entered my grad program, just uh, for listeners, I'm I'm a fourth year PhD student, so I keep talking about entering the grad program. Uh, that's only a few years ago. It's not, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. Um, when I entered the program, I uh, was sort of surprised to see that there wasn't already a literature around supplemental curriculum materials. And I couldn't really find consensus on some basics, like what is supplementation? Who is doing supplementation? Uh, are supplements any good? Do they work, quote unquote? Obviously, work uh, can have a lot of different definitions. And so I wrote this paper, uh, I, I set out to sort of, you know, if not, you know, like create the answers to those questions myself to, uh, assess all the different work that I, I could find that has been done in this area and see if that work came to any sort of agreements around those key, uh, kind of very basic questions, uh, you know, around what the research world understands supplementation to be who is involved both on the using and the creating end of supplements, and then, um, you know, their, their quality in terms of uh, use in the classroom. So then from your review, you searched a couple of databases, you pulled all the things that were relevant, and then it looks like 122 articles or something like that that you reviewed, which that's, that's time consuming. That's a lot of time. But in combing through those 122 articles, you uncovered seven different themes. And we're not going to cover all the themes in the episode, but I didn't want to pull out the ones that I think were most relevant to uh, the day-to-day life as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So the first one dealt with the scope of uh, curriculum yep. supplementation. How yep. prevalent is teacher supplementation? What did you find? Hugely prevalent. Um, it even even having been a teacher, I, I was really surprised to see what these sort of nationally representative surveys uh, indicated. So. Um, Julia Kaufman and her colleagues at RAND uh, run, uh, administer the American Teacher Panel Survey uh, every year. And a few years ago, um, they asked the teachers uh, to, you know, basically check a bunch of boxes, which of this long list of uh, different kind of online and offline resources do you use every week or more? And almost two thirds, about 65% of the, that nationally representative sample of teachers said that they use teachers pay teachers uh, at least weekly. Uh, and that that data is from about five years ago and all indications, um, you know, both as we've been talking about COVID, but also just further studies on smaller samples indicate that that number has only increased since then. Um, the other huge blind spot uh, for that data is a lot of that survey um, was looking at online 
uh, supplementation. And we know that teachers will constantly just, you know, open a Word doc and make something or grab something from maybe a more experienced colleague or a colleague who specializes in a different subject. And that kind of supplementation isn't even uh, captured at all in these surveys that are showing 60, 70, 80% of all teachers engage in this all the time. So if we were to count that sort of offline variety, um, I estimate, you know, it, we'd, we'd easily be pushing 80, 90%. So it is, yeah. It is, and in the, you know, in the paper, you use the word massive, that there is, yeah. uh, it is a huge, it's, it's, it's a huge phenomenon. And, and, um, you know, whether that's positive or negative, you know, we, we, we can kind of maybe get in, into that and it's always yeah. like all things I'm sure nuanced, but, Absolutely. um, you also specifically find, uh, read a lot and then report on, uh, sort of the rise of, of creators of, of these contents as sort of a side hustle or teacherpreneurs yep. of supplemental curriculum. So tell us about teacherpreneurs, uh, you know, who, who are they and, and what did you find out? Definitely. So yeah, teacherpreneurs is, is the word that has, you know, of course been given to, uh, these entrepreneurial teachers who, who, uh, do create their own supplements and this, uh, the finding in the paper, I, I want to like kind of step back for one second does sort of surface, uh, a bit of a limitation to my method, which is to say that when you do a review paper, when all of your data is existing studies, uh, you're bound in your findings to what those existing studies found. And so a lot of these studies look at quote unquote, top teacherpreneurs, um, which they, they measure top in, in different ways. And you can check out the paper to get deeper into that. But that is to say that, uh, those quote unquote, top teacherpreneurs aren't necessarily the best ones. They aren't necessarily the ones we should all be using. Uh, they do, however, tend to be the ones that uh, have the most downloads, the largest storefronts, et cetera. And in the paper, I find um, across a few different studies that that survey them that they tend to be overwhelmingly white, uh, female, relatively experienced, like 10 plus years of teaching experience uh, with uh, college coursework um, in education as well, uh, tend to hold master's degrees, uh, et cetera. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, that they are all that way. So for example, um, you know, be like a rock star, mix and math are two pretty successful uh, TPT storefronts run by educators of color. Um, but on the whole, uh, a lot of the uh, materials are being created by almost your your sort of stereotypical uh, white lady experienced teacher. I like that you uh, dig into the nuance of what top means a little bit. And you mentioned in the paper that Sometimes what gets recommended to take to teachers to purchase is based on how many sales it has. And so then it gets more sales. And, and so it, it goes back to what's getting recommended yeah. may or may not be the best. It's just what's most popular through this sort of herd mentality kind of marketing. Yeah. It's really I, important I, yeah. to keep in mind that the, the, the algorithms, the, the search algorithms are designed to drive engagement quote unquote, they're not designed to drive student learning. They're not designed to drive, uh, you know, professionalism or whatever they're, they're designed to generate clicks. And so that's why, you know, you see so frequently toward the top of, uh, you know, a social media, or I keep coming back to TPT cause it's the biggest, uh, you know, website that hosts these supplements. You'll see, you know, no prep, you'll see easy. Uh, and these are what generate clicks, obviously, uh, you know, as our listeners know 
probably as well better than we do that that that's not uh necessarily going to be the the recipe for the most rigorous materials but that is not necessarily what these um, searched algorithms are selecting for it's important to keep that in mind and so that kind of transitions to the next thing i wanted to talk about is um what what did you find regarding the quality of supplemental curricular items on something on a platform like teachers pay teachers yeah, so there are a few different sort of strands of research that exist that have looked at uh, quality in different ways. So the the most kind of obvious level zero way to look at quality is uh, are the materials you know accurate? Do they contain errors? Uh, do they align to standards? You know, kind of the the basic like level zero academic stuff. Um, and in general, uh, the studies that I have seen. Basically, the consensus is no, um, that, uh, for example, a study by my advisor, Morgan Polikoff and uh, Jennifer Dean, uh, published in a, a Fordham Foundation report, find that uh, high school ELA materials from three main uh, websites that host uh, these supplemental curriculum materials, find them to be um, requiring pretty low depth of knowledge. So, you know, not particularly rigorous. Uh, they find them to uh, have more errors than, than one would be pleased with. Um, and that sort of finding has been replicated uh, for other grades and other subjects by uh, other research teams. Um, another strand, though, to look at um, the quality of these materials focuses not as much on the purely uh, on the pure academics, but more on the like what is the experience of the of the children who are you know learning from these materials. And uh, by and large, uh, again, at least in the studies that that exist at the moment. The news is not great there either. Um, so there are studies that find, uh, for example, that materials uh, tend to contain, uh, you know, racist or sexist tropes. Um, so one that I remember by uh, Gallagher and colleagues finds like uh, a lesson for kindergarten or first graders on a phonics lesson on Q and U and uh, has two students play out the role of Q and the role of U. Uh, in a marriage and you has to like promise to always obey Q and go wherever Q goes uh, or something like that, which is, you know, not uh, probably what we want our kids to be um, understanding about marriage in, in terms of that sort of lopsided power dynamic. Um, some studies, and it seems like every, every few years you hear some horror story about a teacher uh, you know, running some kind of a simulation in history class where they act out some uh, awful part of history and and don't, you know, kind of give it the proper critical uh, discussion or, or, you know, don't even, uh, aren't, aren't properly critical at all. And uh, there's, a, you know, other studies, one by uh, Rodriguez and colleagues from 2019, I want to say, um, focused on history materials that finds, you know, exactly that, that, that students are, uh, a disturbingly high amount of the time asked to kind of embody these uh, very painful moments of history without uh, pre-briefing or debriefing discussions about that. And so, again, this is, you know, perhaps uh, in some ways w what happens when you don't have the sort of moderation on on these websites and you are just click-driven. Um, and so, I, you know, it just really gets back to that. Um, that uh yeah i liked the, where you brought out the difference of alignment and rigor 
where there's a vast majority of materials that say they are aligned with such and such core or with which are, you know, or these standards or that standards. But then on the flip side that, you know, alignment might be a, a um, you know, something that would attract a teacher to, to getting something. But if the, yeah. the rigor of the material is overall not great, yeah. then, uh, you know, uh, then th- that, that is a questionable, uh, questionable material. Um, well, and depending on website, uh, depending on, you know, where, where you're actually sourcing this material, alignment is often not something that is vetted at all. Alignment is often something that the creator of the material just tags uh, in their, you know, on their curriculum. So we've found um, as part of a, another, you know, project that uh, very often materials will be tagged with, you know, X, Y, Z standard, but they may only really be aligned to X and Y and Z were just kind of on there piggybacking. Um, so that, that happens a fair amount as well. So a lot of uh, interesting things, and certainly it's hard to put a blanket statement there that all supplemental curriculum data or everything, you know, that you would get online is, is of poor quality, but it does, I think it, it should raise an eyebrow of, of saying, maybe the majority, you know, there, there is a large amount out there that uh, probably isn't worth educators' time or, or very much of it, at least. So you did have a few bright spots, uh, if we can call it that, in, inside your sure. review. Can, can you expound on, on some of the, the, the good areas that are happening, the, the, the optimistic yeah. areas of curriculum supplementation? Yeah. Definitely. And I, I think the way you put it there, Jake, is is just about perfect, that it doesn't mean that everything is terrible all the time on on these websites. But it, I think raising an eyebrow is exactly the uh, the attitude that that educators should take into, um, you know, using these that, just, you know, staying critical. Um, I don't know if this particularly counts as a bright spot, but across all of those studies that uh, I was discussing that kind of find uh that the materials available online are of low academic quality. Uh, they do tend to find that they are, uh, in terms of layout, in terms of like graphic design, they are strong, which, um, again, kind of plays into this stereotype at least of online materials being, um, you know, all form and no function. Um, but that is at least in the existing literature, a a real finding that does exist. Um, so, you know, if you want to, download a template from online and then spruce it up with your own rigorous activities. Uh, that, that could be a good use of the online stuff. Um, another really important, at least in, uh, to my eye finding, uh, exists from, it comes from a 2018 experiment by, uh, Jackson and Makarin, Makarin, um, where they look at, they basically take as given, okay, we know that most online supplements, uh, aren't going to be great. But we also assume that the reasons they're not great are either the supplements themselves aren't very high quality, or if they are very high quality, maybe they just don't really um, mesh well with what the teacher is already doing. And so there's like some incoherence introduced into the, the uh, instruction. And so in this experiment, they, they basically control for those two pitfalls. They uh, vet some online materials and ensure that they are of high quality, um, you know, according to a team of experts. And they provide teachers PD uh, to really kind of weave these materials in well. And when you do that, the materials, you know, were, were just fine. They didn't hurt the kids. They even uh, helped in some cases. And so the finding there is, you know, maybe not earth shattering, but that 
the problem is not with supplemental materials in themselves. The problem is a lot of supplemental materials aren't very good. And the, 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 the text itself, the curriculum, you know, that that's an, that's an, it's an artifact, right? It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a mode that's meant to be a catalyst for instruction, sure. but in the end it's, I'm in the camp that it's always the instruction, of course. the, the, the curriculum, yeah. you know, enacted that that's going to influence whether, uh, the student is, is learning or not, which 100%. I, I think that plays into the, the framework that you created. Um, mm -hmm. so, so after this review and sifting through all this, you, created a teacher curriculum supplemental supplementation framework. And uh, you, you, you design this to sort of aid future research and say, this is an area we need to look at and to give, um, yes. you know, some coherence for any future research happening there. But I, uh, but clearly there's a lot of practical areas that could support a teacher making wise supplemental um, decisions. So can you expound a little bit on the, the, the TCSF and how you think a teacher could use that mental model to make wise decisions yeah of course so the the main uh sort of contribution of the framework i guess is to paint teacher supplementation as something that is complex that has a lot of different kind of dimensions a lot of elements that play into it um which i can imagine any teacher listeners just kind of nodding along and being like duh that's not a contribution but you got to understand that in the literature prior to, say, five, eight years ago, supplementation really was just treated as, oh, there was like some lack of fidelity to the textbook, but it wasn't really discussed. And so just the idea that uh, it's something worth studying and that it is complex, um, I think, matters in that sense. Although, you know, probably we probably should have known this for decades already. Um, in terms of like practical use, I think frankly, the most useful piece of, of this framework is going to be just as almost a check against yourself. It's not necessarily, I, I think, going to teach most practicing teachers a brand new way of thinking. But the fact is, teaching is hard. And uh, at least when I was a teacher, I was tired all the time. And it can be really, uh, it can be really easy to just forget something or let something slip. And so I think uh, this framework and uh, thinking through the, the dimensions that it highlights in particular, which are, you know, kind of your reason for using a supplemental material, where you're getting the material from, uh, the your kind of anticipated use pattern for the material in terms of uh, how often, when you plan to use it, and then finally just any features of the material itself. So illustrations, layout, whatever. Thinking through those things and any number of other um, dimensions can be helpful for kind of checking yourself uh, to to see whether the supplemental material you're considering really is the best uh, for your goal. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned time and being tired as a teacher all of oh, the God. time is being really busy. And yeah. I, I think that's an important implication here is if if there's evidence saying that a lot of the supplemental curriculum materials that are online are of poor quality yeah. it's it's hard for a teacher to take the time to go yes. through and and sift through and you know what's what's worth your time and and what what isn't so that that's i don't have a good answer for that but that's something definitely to consider is you know as a way of saving time to all of a sudden trying to vet these materials and sometimes you can't really take too much of a sneak peek it's just a storefront and it's just you yeah. know a sample a couple first few pages i 
I think be very challenging as a teacher to really uh, try and and curate in a very conscious, practical, um, you know, eyes wide open uh, kind of kind of way. Absolutely, and there are uh, you know there are some really good articles out there. So there's um, like a piece in uh, the kind of practitioner journal Social Education from 2019 by uh, Gallagher and colleagues. That, that includes like a checklist that teachers can use to, and it's literally like uh, a half of a just like one-sided half a page uh, to like, tr you know, try to make this vetting process a little bit more manageable. But I, I agree with you completely that like, realistically, if we're getting right down to it, a lot of the fact that this vetting needs to happen points to some kind of deeper systemic issues with uh, the education system where we expect uh, so much from a teacher and yet they still only have 24 hours in a day to operate. And that becomes, uh, you know, sometimes we, we run into tensions there for sure. So then what other recommendations would you make for a teacher wanting to curate supplemental materials? Yeah, I think there are, uh, a few, but one, one thing that kind of struck me that I maybe didn't fully consider or, or you know, fully grasped before starting this review was just the really, really wide array of reasons that teachers have for supplementing their curriculum. I think a lot of um, administrators, teachers, districts, states uh, just sort of assume that take as given that if you're supplementing, you are doing so to differentiate, you are doing so to help X group of kids, Y group of kids. And while that's great, if that's always your reason, uh, it is extremely common to supplement because, you know, the, the textbook, you're, you're missing the workbook that goes with your textbook. And so you've got to kind of course correct because uh, you're exhausted and plans are due in 10 hours and you're waking up in six and a half hours uh, because, you know, of any number of reasons. And so I think, um, I think, I don't know that it's, it's advice so much as just uh kind of a, a PSA almost that, um, in supplementing it, it, it's great. And, and hopefully we center our students most of the time, but, but I would, you know, I sometimes had to make calls because I'm a, a human, uh, to, to center myself for, for a night or for an hour and to, you know, I guess my findings here should hopefully make folks feel less bad about doing that if they feel bad uh, in the first place, which I, I know I certainly did uh, from time to time. It's it's really a mixed bag here, right? That where there's there's a lot of different reasons, a lot of dynamics in which a teacher would certainly be justified to go out and 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 use a supplemental curriculum, but then obviously the the pool of resources being tricky to kind of curate from uh, and. You know, social media is not going anywhere. Teacherpreneurs aren't going anywhere. All of these dynamics are, if anything, accelerating. Uh, so it'll be an interesting, you know, decade to come on what happens with uh, supplemental curriculum. So the paper we've been talking about today is called A Theoretical Framework for Studying Teachers' Curriculum Supplementation. Uh, Daniel, if folks want to get in touch with you or, or be able to have a copy of the paper, is there a way they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's published uh, on the review of in the review of educational research, which is a journal. But I think that is uh, 
probably behind a paywall. So uh, please just, if, if you're interested in either having a copy of the paper or just chatting about any of this, uh, I would love to chat. Uh, my email is dsilver, just the letter D, and then silver like the color, dsilver at usc.edu. Um, and I can provide you a PDF of the paper or just chat. That's fantastic. Well, Daniel Silver, this has been fantastic conversation around supplemental curriculum. Thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Final question for you. What do you think makes a good teacher? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I, I'm going to uh, not attempt to answer that once and for all, because um, if I could, I uh, probably wouldn't be a grad student or uh, any kind of uh, a student. Um, I think one really important aspect, though, is what we talked about earlier of, of just having this critical eye. Uh, it, and it's an aspect that has always been important, but I think, as you just mentioned, is going to become more and more important um, as, you know, we enter the next decade or decades as social media only grows in prominence. Um, it's so important as a teacher to develop quick accurate heuristics to vet um, garbage from non-garbage uh, because there is so much garbage out there. And so I don't know that this is, you know, the only thing that makes a great teacher, but I do think uh, certainly moving through the 2020s, a great teacher does need to be able to uh, be critical enough to sort out, you know, the not so good from the good, not just when it comes to materials, but when it comes to new pedagogical methods, new ideas, new practices. Uh, and then of course, the other side of that coin is also kind of having the humility to adapt and embrace when those materials, ideas, et cetera, actually are, uh, improvements and, and, and are worth it. That is a, a rare combination and uh, a really important one. Daniel Silver, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jake. big thanks to Daniel Silver for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I find the concept of supplemental curriculum to be just fascinating, and I'm grateful that Daniel Silver would join us on the show to talk about it for a little bit. My two cents on the topic have to do with how we use curriculum. In my master's program, I read a book by Lev Vygotsky called Mind and Society, and I went through a phase where I became absolutely obsessed with Vygotsky, and uh, those that know me professionally would probably argue that I am still obsessed with, with Lev Vygotsky. And one thing that Vygotsky talks about is mediated thinking, of using a tool within our environment and the way in which we use that tool is able to change the way we think. And I view that's how we use curriculum, that curriculum does not in and of itself teach a student how to read, but what curriculum does is it provides a tool, a conduit for instruction upon which learning can happen. And so curriculum, I think from a Vygotskyan perspective, uh, curriculum is just, it's just an artifact. It's just a tool in an environment, but it's how it's being used that's going to make or break the difference. So then when we talk about something like Teachers Pay Teachers and how the vast majority of materials on Teachers Pay Teachers is of really low rigor, that's absolutely concerning because if it is of low rigor, there's less opportunity for it to be used in rigorous ways. And so the lack of rigor doesn't preclude 
rigorous instruction being centered around it, but it certainly doesn't help facilitate that either. And so for me, it comes back to wise teachers making informed decisions. Um, there was a time when I was curating, I was trying to find some stuff on Teachers Pay Teachers for a, a little 30-minute literacy block I had within my classroom time, and I found it to be very challenging because of the phenomenon that Daniel Silver was talking about. Of, I just felt like I was sifting through this ocean of materials looking for something specific that I couldn't quite put my finger on, but that everything either seemed so vague or I could tell right off the bat that it just wasn't good quality. And that was really my only experience with Teachers Pay Teachers, and I just kind of said, I'm done with this. But I know that's not the case for every educator, and I know it's easy to throw something like Teachers Pay Teachers underneath the bus, but it comes back to conscious curation. So I would advocate for those looking to supplement curriculum within their classroom, I would first ask that, is curriculum supplementation really necessary, or can you make do with the curriculum you already have? Is it truly a gap that needs to be addressed um, that, that does not exist in your current curriculum or could not be with, with some adaptations to your current curriculum? And then perhaps if the answer is no, then it's okay, let's look outside to something else. But being aware of the common pitfalls, that if it says it's aligned with whatever your core standards are, not necessarily taking that at face value. Where there's no vetting process or no peer review process, it's hard to know what alignment really means in that situation. And if it is aligned, it's hard to know if it really is, is rigorous or not. So there are great materials out there. There truly are fantastic materials, but fantastic materials cannot replace a fantastic teacher. And that's what I'm about, is if we can be fantastic teachers, we can be able to use materials in a wise way to help change our students' literacy outcomes. That's all I've got for you today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. If you liked this show or any other show, make sure to share it with a colleague. And until next time, let's teach reading just a little bit better.